Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. It's good to see so many of you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for uh, being here in the middle of the summer uh, when so many things are upended. I was struck this morning, probably more than at any time so far, to be honest with you, how I just was sitting thinking about how I long uh, for things to be back to normal, not only in life, but in, you know, to be done with these truncated services where we're wearing masks and we can't even hug one another or really get close to one another and talk. Uh, to, to all of the other things. So I know it's a hard time. It's a hard time for us too. And so if you need us, please feel free to call and, and reach out to us so that we can know what's going on. If you know somebody who's sick or if you get sick or if there's an issue with your job, we want to care for you well as we continue to endure these long days uh, together. Amen. But one day soon, uh, one day soon we'll be back uh, to normal. Uh, but in that regard, I'm so grateful to continue the series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're actually going to finish up the time we're going to spend in Ecclesiastes together this morning. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, you can also just read it in your worship folder there. It'll, uh, the words will be on the screen behind me as I read the passage together uh, as we come to uh, God's Word now, okay? So let's turn our focus uh, to this passage here in Ecclesiastes 3. Hear the word of the Lord. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people will be fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's word. This is probably the most famous passage in this book, maybe one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, and so it didn't feel right to leave the book without talking about it. Ecclesiastes is a sermon about the vanity of life under the sun, and that word vanity, as we've seen, keeps coming up. And it actually is a word that means breath or vapor. And though it's sometimes translated something like meaningless, that is not the preacher's meaning. Rather, he wants us to feel how elusive and how fleeting life is, lest we continue to grasp and seek to control for gain rather than to receive whatever comes from God as gift. We use our knowledge and we use our wealth and our strength and all of these things to try to get a hold on life and to get ahead or to ensure a particular outcome, but it keeps slipping right through our fingers. That's the teaching of the book. 
And Ecclesiastes is a dose of reality to make us wise. And here in chapter 3, the preacher pulls out the big guns. Because the place where we feel the vanity of life, this word vanity that that's, keeps coming up, the place we feel it the most is in our experience with time, which is the theme of these verses. Time flies. Can I get an amen? Time flies. But what do we mean when we say that? And we say it all the time, don't we? Ashley and I are uh, coming to the end of our time with our kids in our home. It's gone so fast. Uh, no matter how hard we've tried, and we've tried. No, how many, no matter how many pictures we've taken, and there are tens of thousands somewhere. No matter all of that, the days have slipped right through our fingers. And part of the sadness for parents is we can feel the vanity of, of life the most when it comes to time. That's my contention. But there's something curious about this passage. In all these verses about time, you won't find the word vanity. It's actually not in these 15 verses. It's strange as you read the book. It's like this one place in all of Ecclesiastes where the word doesn't come up. It's everywhere else, but not here. Now, why is that? And I think it's because the ultimate, ultimately the lesson of the book is that there is a vanity to the vanity itself. For the person of faith, at least. For the person who walks uh, and lives a Godward life, the preacher's wisdom seems to be that if you lean, listen, this is, this, is, this is, if you lean into the vanity and learn the lessons that it brings, you can undo it and actually build a life that really matters, a life that you can truly enjoy now, but that will ultimately last far beyond your days on this earth, what the Bible calls eternal life. And so true wisdom is to live a life that exposes the vanity of vanity. And so you see the sermon title for this morning. And to do that, you need two things. You need to learn two, two skills, or you need to really approach life from two ways. You need first to keep time, and secondly, as you keep time, you need to fear God. And if you do those two things and put them together, then you can live a life that exposes the vanity of the vanity that we're being, uh, that's being revealed to us here in this text. So let's look at each of those in turn if we just walk uh, in a few minutes together in the text. First, you have to keep time. You have to learn how to keep time because in verse 1 it says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now these, these lines are beautiful poetry. There are 14 sets of opposites. That is two sets of seven opposites. Seven, of course, being the number in the Bible to describe the totality of something. So when the preacher says there's a time to be born and a time to die, He's referring not just to those two events, but to the whole of a person's life and everything that happens in between. All of the stuff between the day of your birth and the day of your death. And so he goes on, and we could walk through it together. There are times of planting. When you work hard and nothing seems to happen, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see the veggies growing, and it's time to pluck them off before they start to wither from the heat. There's times to put down roots when the same old, same old, where it's just that day after day, and then there are times of great disruption and change like the ones we're going through now. There are times when you're building and times when you're dismantling in order to rebuild again. There are seasons of great joy and celebration followed by seasons, whole seasons of sadness and loss, and it can go from one to the other in the blink of an eye. And sometimes you're weeping in the morning and dancing by the afternoon or the other way around. 
in the first 15 years or so of parenting, I don't know why I have parenting on the brain, but I guess I did this week. But those first 15 years or so, it's all about embracing your kids. And you spend all of those years embracing them only to turn the corner and then realize that all of a sudden it changes and your job is to let them go. That's verse 5. There are times to seek. And that word means to acquire. Children are born and fortunes are made, and, but the gaining turns into losing. There's bankruptcies and funerals and nursing homes. In relationships, you can have incredible warmth and intimacy and then something happens and there's a tear and all of the closeness is lost and you have to enter into a season of mending and then after a while the wound heals. But if you stay in the relationship long enough, it happens again and again over and over again, friends become enemies and enemies become friends. Marriages that begin with wedding celebrations end in divorce proceedings. World War II, excuse me, World War I becomes the Roaring Twenties, which eventually leads to the Great Depression and World War II, which turns into the baby boom. And then Vietnam and inflation and gas shortages. But soon after the financial resurgence of the 80s, and war becomes peace, which becomes war. And peacetime and wartime go back and forth. I could go on and on and on, okay? You see, you see the point I'm trying to make. Life is full of incredible highs and incredible lows. It's a wild roller coaster ride, and we're, we, and we're supposed to be there for all of it. I remember uh, one day in particular, just a couple of months ago, where I, uh, I did, a, I did a, a, a funeral that was just incredibly uh, heart-wrenching and sad, uh, and it was just overwhelming in some ways emotionally at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I did a wedding at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Because that is life. And the point of verses 1 through 8 is not the particulars. It's the big picture. So we shouldn't get hung up on the details. The 14 pairs describe contrasting experiences. They're meant to. Zach Eswine calls them disquiets and delights. And, they, and that's memorable, so I'm going to go with it. Life is full of both. And so the wise person realizes that life brings both of these things at us. And so a wise person is not cynical and overly pessimistic because he knows that the times often occasion laughter and dancing and harvest. Life is full of those things. But he does not paint the world only in pastels either because there are also times of losing and weeping and war. Life is laughter and lament. Lament and laughter. Back and forth, it turns from good to bad and back to good, and we're not in control of any of it. In fact, here's my contention. If you want to see your sin this morning, here's the reality. All of our unhappiness in life comes from trying to control things and constantly being frustrated when, when it doesn't work out. That's the reality of sin. And so we're confronted with a choice by this text. And the choice is this. We can receive all the different times and seasons we go through and do the work that each one requires of us, or we can resist. We can resist the changes as they come. And the preacher's goal is to prepare us ahead of time by reminding us that what, what life under heaven, verse 1, is like so that we might be able to recognize and submit to and plan accordingly for both the disquiets and the delights because that's what it means to keep time properly. And that's a huge part of being wise. But let's be as specific as possible. What does it mean? What does it mean to receive and not resist the times of delight? So all the good stuff in those verses. The preacher is explicit down at the end in verse 13. He says, I perceive, look there, that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, for this is God's gift to man. 
Now here's the teaching. It goes like this. You're not in control of when the good times come. You know that? You're not in control of how long they last. So when they come, when, when they do come into your life, don't waste them. Enjoy them as much as you can for as long as you can. Listen, your babies will only be little for a short time. Don't wish those days away. Make the most of them. If this is a time of harvest for you, then the best thing you can do is to take a break and soak it up and don't rush on to the next thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. We recently read in 1 Timothy 6 <clears throat> that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And that's such a comforting verse. It's such an amazing verse. I promise I don't have coronavirus. I'm just got my throat caught. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> There's no guarantee that your hard work will bring times of delight. <clears throat> Those times are God's gift. And he wants you to enjoy them for his sake because that makes him happy. <clears throat> a person of faith that lives well, uh, this, this should be your motto, death by living. Think about that, death by living. It's the title of a book by Indy Wilson <clears throat> that I read recently that was really, really good and really helpful to me. He says, uh, listen to this, this was so profound. He says, the real yearning, the Solomonic state of mind is caused by too much gift by too many things to love in too short a time. That's the real crisis. And so, thank you, Patrick. Look at Patrick. I appreciate that. And so, uh, it's, this is a, the most incredibly unspiritual thing I've ever said in a sermon, I think. But if that's the case, then you should do your bucket list, not your to-do list. You should do your bucket list, not your to-do list. Because those times are so sparing sometimes in life that you ought to take every advantage to, to make the most of them. But what about times of disquiet? What does it mean to receive and not resist those times, the hard times? Well, you expect them to come. When they come, you don't act surprised. You don't mope around and feel sorry for yourself. You go to the gym. Not literally, let me explain. In Hebrews 12, the times of disquiet are there called discipline, and the word is literally the word gymnasium there. And so the idea is that you can't avoid the hard stuff, but it's not willy-nilly. God, when he brings these things into your life, when laughter turns to mourning, what the Lord is doing is he's taking you to the gym. He's bringing the disquiet into your life to build your spiritual muscles. And so you receive, you receive it by putting in the work. Verse 13, I perceive that there's nothing better than for them to be joyful, not only joy, and to do good. So in disquieting times, you might not be able to be joyful, but you don't have to be joyful to do good. And so do good. You can accept the discipline and, and become a person of depth and not waste the opportunity to build spiritual muscles and wait on the Lord for a, season, for a change of season, but without any demand regarding the timing of the, or the circumstances and to have a sharp eye for the gifts that are a part of that part of life too because they're there in those times as well. Now, remember, the preacher's weapon is his honesty. This is what life is really like, he's saying. There is disquiet and delight, delight and disquiet. And they come and they go, and there's really no rhyme or reason, and there's no way for us to control any of it. And so trying to micromanage things and resist the changing of the seasons is useless. 
The times come and they go without our permission, so the best we can do is receive the good and the bad because all of life, good and bad, is gift, not gain. And that's where the preacher ends up in verse 9. After he meditates on all of these things in verses 1 through 8, he says there, what gain has the worker from his toil? He asks this again. It's a question that keeps coming up in this book, and it's a rhetorical question. We already know the answer, so I'm going to ask you and you respond. What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the answer? Nothing. We should know this by now. He's training us in that answer. Nothing. So here's my advice, and I think it's his advice, advice too. Instead, instead of working for gain, lean into the vanity. Let the time fly by and enjoy all that you can, because when the clock runs out, the good news is that's not the end. To use C.S. Lewis's word at the end of his Narnia books, all of this life and all of our adventures here will have only, have only been the cover and the title page. But when all of our time here is used up, we will then and only then be beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis wrote a book actually about heaven. I don't know if you knew that. It's called The Great Divorce. And in his depiction of heaven, the souls from hell actually, they come and they experience heaven. And part of what they experience is that the grass was so sh the grass is so sharp and so hard that they could hardly step on it and they tried but you couldn't you couldn't pluck flowers out of the ground or even pick up a leaf because everything there is so heavy with reality it's more solid not less so than the earth because life there is not vanity it's the exact opposite life under the sun is vanity but look here in verse 1 but we're talking about life under heaven and see that's different that's a different way of phrasing that. And Lewis's point is that we have to become people of weight and substance if we're going to enjoy heaven because everything in heaven is heavy. And so we might as well go ahead and get started now to get in touch with this reality that, is to, that, that this life is vanity makes it more real, not less. To look beyond this life for our ultimate source of, source of joy and hope. And so that's the second thing. As you're, as you're, as you're trying to... Um, Keep time, you have to keep time in light of, secondly, fearing God. And remember, this is the way the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Verse 13 of chapter 12 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So he gets to the, the end, and this is the last thing he has to say. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But it's here in this passage, too. Look at verse 14. God has done it. God has done what? God has done everything. No matter what it is you're going through, God has done it so that people fear before him. And so here, again, we're confronted with these realities. God, heaven, judgment. And these truths are meant, excuse me, they mean that the vanity of life itself is vanity. That the vanity is fleeting as well. And by fear, the preacher actually means three things. So I tricked you. You thought this was a sermon uh, with two points, but the second point actually has three subpoints. Ha <laughs> gotcha. But I'm going to be really fast. By fear there in verse 14, the preacher actually means these three things. To fear God properly, he means that you have to acknowledge his reality, that you have to rejoice in all of his works, and that ultimately you have to rest in his character. And so let me just walk through those three really quick and we'll be done. First, you, you, the fear here is, is first acknowledging the reality of God. It says in verse 11, and you ought to really underline this one and 
and do something with it because it really is just truly remarkable. It says, God has put eternity into man's heart. And that means that every person in the world, no matter who you are, no matter whether where you are on the spectrum of faith, whether you are a believing person or you're an agnostic person or whatever the case might be, if you're listening or if you're here, wherever you are, it means that every one of us lives with the reality of God and eternity on our hearts. That there are no atheists. Not according to the Bible. I mean, think about this. Why do we complain? Because when we say time flies, it really is a complaint, isn't it? Why do we complain about the way time flies? Does the fish complain about the sea being wet? Why not? Well, it's because he was made for the water. But is it possible that the feeling that there is never enough time is itself a clue telling us that there is something in us that is not temporal? That's why the passing of time feels like scratchy clothes. We are souls that will last forever. We're not made for time. We're made for timelessness. We're made for God and eternity. And the preacher says, if you listen, if you listen closely, you know it. You might try to deny it, but it's there and it won't leave you alone. God has put it into your heart and you can't shake it. Romans 1 says this, Paul writes, what can be known about God is plain to all of us because God has shown us. He goes on to say that in our sin, what we do is we suppress the reality of God that's on our hearts. We try to keep it down under the conscience, you know, out of our conscious thought. But, it's, but the problem is it's like a beach ball uh, that you shove under the water and you spend all of this effort and energy trying to keep it submerged and it won't stay there. It just keeps popping up to the surface. So better just to be honest about it and to acknowledge it. And to say it's there. I can't really shake it. I don't know what to do with it, but at least I've got to deal with this reality. And I know, I know that's scary. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But that's the very first thing. When he talks about fearing the Lord, he means to acknowledge his reality. But secondly, he means also that a person who fears the Lord is one who properly keeps time by rejoicing in all of God's works. Now, there's so much here. Uh, We could spend, we really could spend a long time. But let me boil it down to just a couple of things for the sake of brevity. The preacher says, first, that God is the beginning and the ending of everything. So look there at verse 14 again. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Or as Kanye would say, that's on God. And and that's right. Now pay attention to the argument of verse 14. It says, God has done it. So that people fear before him. So you fear God when you see that he is sovereign over all things. That nothing happens that doesn't come from him. That no change of season from good to bad or bad to good that isn't initiated by him. He is the beginning and also the end of everything. And you don't have a say in when you sow or when you reap. You don't determine the times of weeping or when they turn to laughing. But God is in control of it all. And somehow... In some inscrutable way, he's bringing all the discordant parts of life together and turning them into a grand symphony. Look at what the preacher says in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time, he reflects. Now that's the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28, if you know that verse. 
Uh, for God is working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And can I have some, I have some really good news this morning. Do you know that that includes our failures and our messes, by the way? That even they contribute to the beautiful thing that God is doing. There was a line in that N.D. Wilson book that I mentioned that just clung to me. It has for almost three weeks now. He said, listen to this, he said, from the compost of our failed effort, God brings glory. And I just, I like that image. From the compost of our failed efforts, God brings glory. In other words, the parts of life that I'd rather throw out, they're what actually becomes the soil in which God plans his ultimate dreams for the world. And I like even more the promise that part of what that, that dream for the world is is that he will turn everything and make it beautiful, ultimately, ultimately. But in its time, he says, in its time, don't, don't miss that part. And for some of the things, that means in the time beyond this life. And that brings us to the idea of judgment, which is where Ecclesiastes ends, remember in verse 14 of chapter 12. But I love the way the preacher puts it here. After he meditates on all that God is involved in and all that God does, he says in the very last line of this of this section of the scriptures, verse 15, God seeks out what has been driven away. And the commentators all say that that is an allusion to judgment, that there, there's a time coming when every hidden thing will be revealed, uh, where every injustice will be rectified, where every crime will be punished, where every broken heart will be healed, where every loss will be made up for, and it will all be right in the end. But the language of that verse does something to me. Uh, that I, I really can't uh, even put into words. I don't know how to fully explain it. And it's unclear. There's some, there's some ambiguity and vagueness to it, and that may be part of it for me, exactly what he means here. But it's something like this, to borrow from Lewis again, that, that at the end of the day, all of our wantings will become havings. That all of the things that we've spent our whole life pursuing that have just been just out of reach for us, all of the, the joys and the hopes and the desires that we've never had fulfilled but that have just been right there on the tips of our fingers, all of those things that we've pursued but never truly found, we will find. And all of the things this life of vanity has taken away, all of the losses we've endured, all of the heartbreaks and the pains and the tears and the sadness that we've had to, to go through. Listen, it says that God has sought out all of those things that have been driven away and he's wrapped them up in that judgment day will be that Christmas morning. For those who fear him. Isn't that great? For those who fear him. But there's a third part of fearing him about fearing God, and that is not only acknowledging his reality and rejoicing in his works, but ultimately resting in his character. God has put eternity into our hearts, uh, and we know that this life is not all there is, that God is working together all the parts of our lives for good somehow, but it's still a mystery exactly how it works, and so we have to trust him. I mean, look again at verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, you will never have all your questions answered, not because there aren't answers, but because you're not big enough or smart enough to understand the totality of what God is doing and why. It requires faith. It requires faith. You've got to trust him. 
And the way you come to trust him is to know what he's like, to know his character. I mean, why do we, want, why do we run from the reality of God? Because we don't know his character. Why, do, why does the idea that we're not in control but that God is controlled not bring us any comfort but actually is a terrifying thing because we don't know what he's like. We don't trust him. I mean, why does judgment sound like bad news and not good news and produce dread, even in those of us who, who have been saved by Jesus because we don't understand his true heart? Well, what is God like? Oh, we could go so many places to answer that question, couldn't we? But what about one that's familiar to all of us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves, God gives that verse says that's what that's what that verse says god loves god gives you want to know what god is like god loves and god gives that's all you need to know that's what he's like everything he does is an expression of his love and his generosity even judgment god loves and he gives god loves and he gave his son the lord jesus christ to live the life of obedience that we owe to him as our creator and to die the death we deserve to die because of our sin And if you believe in Jesus, then you can know him intimately. Not the vague reality of verse 11 in Romans 1. You can actually know him as father and as friend. And by knowing him, you can learn to trust him and to stop trying to control everything and everybody and all the stuff. And receive as gift both the delightful and the disquieting times life brings. And you can be confident of the future that awaits you and and, and um, enjoy forever and ever and ever the thousand million happy endings that are yet to come. You won't even cower at the thought of meeting God in judgment because you know that the cross of Jesus means no condemnation awaits you. Your sins have been driven away and that's the one thing that God does not seek. Judgment will not be tense, it will be a sigh of relief. I really want, if you're a person of faith, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you're trusting in him, then judgment even will not be tense. It will be a sigh of relief. It won't be like taking a final exam. It'll be like the last bell on the last day of school before summer vacation. It's true. This is the Christian gospel. This is the hope that we have for the world and that we have for one another. Life, you know, life is vanity only if all your gain is found in life itself. But if God is your great joy, if your sins have been forgiven and you know him intimately, and if heaven is your hope for an eternal home, if those things are true, then the vanity of life itself, excuse me, then the vanity of life is itself the thing that is fleeting and passing away. And that is the beginning of of a life of wisdom and true fruitfulness and service to God and others the life that he offers us. And so let's pray together that that would be true of all of us. So Father, we are confronted so often with the reality of this vanity that you uh, reveal to us here. And yet the promise of your gospel is that if we turn to you and if we lean into the reality of life being the way that it is, we can actually see the undoing of this vanity. The vanity can become vain. And we can find joy and happiness and peace now that will, and, and we can experience, and we can have the hope of a future where even all of the, our tears and our sadnesses go into the ground 
and increase the harvest of joy we experience on the other side of death. I mean, that, that's an impregnable hope. And it leads to a, a, a joy-filled life of celebration and wonder and also a deep sense of um, character and strength that can fight through the hard times. May that be so of us. We need that so desperately, even in this time we're going through now. So thank you for these words of encouragement to us. Now send your spirit to implant them into our hearts. Especially in this moment where what we're about to sing is so true. Where there really is nothing for us to do but to wait for you. Oh Lord, remove this plague from our nation. Remove this time of disquiet and disruption from us. But until you do, our eyes are upon you. And so we sing as an expression of our faith this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What an appropriate song. Let me say, if you are here in that sense of God putting eternity upon your heart, or if you're listening, if you're at home, in that sense of that verse saying, God has put eternity on your heart, and you would say, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily believe, but I, I get what you're saying. Would you please reach out to somebody so that we can talk to you about that? If you're a teenager and your parents have talked to you about faith and you're not sure what you believe, but that strikes a chord with you, would you go home and talk to your parents about that and make, and make sense of that? We need to make sense of that, right? So that's my first admonishment. But my second, my second admonishment is for all who have faith in the Lord Jesus, the good news of the song we just sang, if his love is your delight, in other words, if his love is the source of, of all of the joy and energy and hope that you need to get through life, then I have great news for you. And it's just this, no matter what you face when we go out this door, his love goes with you. And so that's what these words mean. This word, this benediction is the promise of God's love hovering over your life, which means that we can go and face whatever comes armed with the joy of, of, of rejoicing in his great love for us. And so receive these words, uh, no matter how long the darkness pervades or no matter what joys await you in this week and know that everything that you encounter is from God. So fear him, turn to him, uh, live toward him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. We'll see you next week. If you would please congregate outside, that would help us a great deal. So we want you to stick around and talk, but let's do that outside.